Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Barack Obama moves quickly to implement his agenda, the inaugural promise. We will restore science to its rightful place. The action, an immediate order creating the right of the public to know about all but the most sensitive government scientific research and rulemaking proceedings. Also, anticipating Obama, a federal judge shuts down a last-minute move by President Bush to begin drilling for gas near national parks. And a space scientist becomes unpopular when he helps demote Pluto. There's a letter from a girl, Madeline Yost, who said, you know, Dear Dr. Tyson, why did you take away my favorite planet? Here's a picture of it. This is what it looks like. Put it back in. Write back soon, but not in cursive. I don't know how to read cursive yet. For the love of Pluto and more this week on Living on Earth, stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. It is my great personal honor to present the 44th President of these United States, Barack Obama. In calling for the nation to act boldly and swiftly, Barack Hussein Obama repudiated the ideology, actions, and inactions of his predecessor. We will restore science to its rightful place and wield technology's wonders to raise healthcare's quality and lower its cost. We will harness the sun and the winds and the soil to fuel our cars and run our factories. On day one, President Obama signed an order that alters disclosure rules, giving the public the right to know in all but the most sensitive government proceedings and documents. This marks a sharp break with the Bush White House in procedures that will affect public health and environmental protection. Anticipating the change of the presidential guard, a federal judge blocked a controversial last-minute move by the Bush administration, allowing drilling for oil and natural gas in Utah and Colorado close to national parks. Rocky Barker is an environmental reporter for the Idaho Statesman, and he joins me now for an update. Hi, Rocky. Good to talk to you. So this judge went to work on a Saturday to issue this temporary restraining order. Why? What's so urgent? What makes this land so special? When you take yourself into these canyon lands, the wide open spaces that the the American West is really known for, you just see these beautiful deep canyons. You see these huge arches and rock outcroppings, awesome shadows all covered in, in the western uh, sky. It's, it's this whole mix of just openness that you lose yourself in it. On top of that, it has the largest concentration of ancient rock art and other cultural resources. Why do this on a Saturday? Why, uh, why did he do this uh, over the weekend? I, I think he wanted to make sure that that decision was clearly stopped until the new administration came in. And he made a judgment in that restraining order that I, I think that a lot of Americans would agree with. Is he said while there was an, it is clearly a national interest to drill for more oil and gas. That interest is not a priority over the interest of our of protecting our scenic national parks and wildlands. Now the judge in this case said that the Bureau of Land Management didn't do a proper environmental analysis. What was missing? 
what was missing was they had not done an analysis, according to the judge, of the potential air pollution of the national parks and national monuments in the area, arches, canyon land, national parks, and dinosaur national monument. Now, this is not just Utah, but this is also Colorado as well, then. That's right. It, it's a regional effects. There were about 149,000 acres affected originally, but the BLM, when they did this, forgot to talk to the National Park Service, and so they had to go back, consult with them, and they took it down to about 110,000 acres. About 3 million acres would have been affected from a scenic standpoint. Now, there's another unusual element of this case. As I understand it, there's a 27-year-old uh, University of Utah student named Tim DeChristopher who, uh, well, could we say he crashed the party at the lease auction and bought uh, almost a $2 million lease with really no intention or means of paying for it. Can, can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. He went there thinking he was just going to protest, and then at the last minute he thought, well, why don't I just bid? And he did. He won leases on 13 parcels and drove the price up on a whole lot of the other ones. By doing this, the BLM went, you know, was very angry, and the U.S. Department of Justice actually has begun looking at him for fraud. But at the, eventually he came up with the $45,000 required to hold the leases temporarily, and so he might get out of that fraud case. But it is still pending, and he's still, uh, you know, he's still in harm's way. Uh, Rocky, let's talk about the big picture for a moment. Uh, how does this case here involving uh, Arches National Park and Canyonlands and, and, and Dinosaur National Monument, how does this fit in with the overall trend you've seen under the Bush administration in terms of oil and gas lease sales in the West? For the last eight years, particularly the first four years, they were so aggressive, they put oil and gas wells in places that are particularly important habitat for sage-grouse and other uh, desert species. In fact, about the same amount of land was leased during the Bush years as was leased during the Clinton years, except during the Bush years it was a lot of the more sensitive lands that the Clintons and clearly the Obama administration are not going to approve. What does it mean now to have a temporary restraining order, and how does the arrival of the Obama administration play into what's going on? Well, a temporary restraining order stops them from doing anything. They can't move this forward at all. Clearly, if there was a continuing Bush administration, they would push this. They would continue to try to get these sales through. They would have the option of pulling the case back, doing the analysis on air pollution, and moving forward. Now, though, that a Obama administration is coming in, uh, who has already told us, they've been clear in the transition before uh, the new administration took over, that they oppose these. They have the option of just simply dropping the case. Rocky Barker is an environment reporter for the Idaho Statesman in Boise. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Okay, now here's a riddle. What federal agency hands out billions of dollars, sometimes to people who promise not to work, is in charge of our nation's trees and inspecting our food? Well, that's the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which develops policy on food, hands out billions in farm subsidies, and oversees the Forest Service. Former Iowa governor and presidential candidate Tom Vilsack has been confirmed by the Senate to lead the USDA. Joining me to take a look at the challenges that lie ahead for the new Secretary of Agriculture is Ken Cook, president of the Environmental Working Group. Uh, Mr. Cook, 
Tell me about Tom Vilsack and his record as Iowa's governor. I think he's a listener. I think he's someone who's going to uh, use his time in office to wade into tough issues, whether it has to do with Forest Service rules, uh, whether we will spend more money for more nutritious school lunches, whether we'll cap farm subsidies, all kinds of contentious issues, Steve. I think he'll weigh in and listen to all sides. I don't feel like he's so beholden to agribusiness or so oriented towards conservation or the environment that we can really tell at this stage how he'll come down and what advice he'll give to the president on any of these issues at this stage. Ken, let's go through a few issues now that Tom Vilsack is is going to face. At the top of the list is ethanol. Ethanol got, uh, I think, three quarters of all the federal renewable energy tax credits in 2007. How do you see that changing as Mr. Vilsack takes over now at USDA? Well, I would say that two years ago, there was much less questioning of corn-based ethanol than there is today. Uh, when food prices went up, when there has been new evidence of the impact of ethanol in terms of causing land to come into production and from as a result of that causing increased in greenhouse gases, Vilsack has said on the one hand that he's been a big supporter of corn-based ethanol. He has also said that he thinks that that needs to give way to something that is better, but no one has really described very well just how superior the next generation of ethanol might be. I think Vilsack is coming in at a very important time where we need to have a much more robust discussion about the future of biofuels than we've had so far. And I think everyone is looking to see whether he will come to it with the judicial temperament that he's known for and whether he will be willing, if it comes down to it, to take on, in some cases, his own home state interests and friends in the ethanol industry and say, wait a minute, maybe we've gone too far too fast on corn ethanol. We need to rethink this. The USDA handles a forest service, something that many people aren't aware of. How much of a conservationist do you think Tom Vilsack will be when it comes to roadless rules or protecting something like the Tongass National Forest, which is a a major temperate rainforest for the whole planet? Well, he does not come to the job with much of a track record at all. Uh, Coming from the Midwest, where these national forest issues are not nearly as heated as they are, for example, in Alaska, where the Tongass National Forest is a critical and very controversial issue. I think what we'll have to look for, again, is his conservation temperament. Will that come through? Will he err on the side of conservation, or will he heed the concerns, particularly in this tough economic period we're in uh, to create jobs by allowing more lumber to be cut from national forests. I think the key thing there is to look to who is appointed as the the head of the Forest Service, the chief, and then above that position, uh, the undersecretary uh, for the Forest Service and uh, natural resources will be a key position. My sense is he'll probably tilt towards conservation. During the presidential campaign, Sarah Palin, the vice presidential Republican candidate, uh, drew a lot of criticism for seeming to endorse the shooting of wolves from airplanes. But this is something that the USDA does as, as part of its, quote, wildlife services to manage predatory species like coyotes and wolves. How do you think Tom Vilsack will handle this issue of shooting wolves from airplanes? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I hope he comes down clearly on the side of of dropping that uh, practice uh, and uh, focusing again on our ability to uh, conserve 
wildlife species at the same time we have a prosperous economy. Uh, I don't think he's going to come into this with the same kind of uh, attitude that we saw in the last administration, where uh, natural resources that are owned by the public were seen as something that should be turned over as quickly as possible to private interests. I don't think he comes into the job with that orientation at all. But I think on very difficult issues like predator control, he's going to be up against not just the outside interests who want to continue past practices, but probably a considerable bureaucracy or portion of it within uh, the various agencies who want to continue that too. In sum, Ken Cook, what are your hopes for the USDA under the Obama administration? Well, I hope it goes back to being uh, what Lincoln intended since we started with an inauguration that was so steeped in Lincoln's tradition. He called it the People's Department when he established it. It needs to be the People's Department again. It can't be the Agribusiness Department. It can't be the Lumber Department. Uh, It can't be the uh, Animal uh, Slaughterhouse Department. It has to be the People's Department. Protect food safety, uh, value conservation uh, highly even if it means at the expense, in some cases, of maximum production. Take care of the hungry. He has the entire food stamp program under him, the entire school lunch program under him. So he's really got an opportunity to step in and say, this is once again going to be the department as Lincoln intended it. And we're not going to be beholden to special interests. We're going to open up our doors here and listen to everyone. And when we act, we're going to act in the public's interest, not just in the interest of the big dogs. Ken Cook is the president of the Environment Working Group in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much, Ken. Thank you. Just ahead, weathering climate change. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The rise in greenhouse gas emissions means that the Earth's climate is already changing. How much will vary from place to place, from profound to subtle. Some locations will suffer more severe floods and storms. Other places will become drier. Some will get hotter, and some could even get colder for a time. But while there is no way to avoid some degree of climate disruption, we may be able to help ecosystems adapt. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman recently took a hike with four experts to learn what's being done to adapt one forest to the effects of a shifting climate. The air is crisp, cold, and clear as John Scanlon hikes up Mount Matadic in north-central Massachusetts. Let me just get up here on the high side of the tree, being the forester in me. Scanlon, a forestry project leader with the state's Division of Fisheries and Wildlife, is looking for signs of climate change. Here at Mount Watetic, we have examples of some of the types of forested habitats that are likely under the emerging climate change scenarios to be disrupted or potentially even lost uh, from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, specifically spruce fir forest, which we'll hike up to on Mount Watetic, and resident northern hardwood uh, forest. Massachusetts began buying up land around Mount Watetic back in the 1920s. Today it owns about 4,000 acres. Two stands of hardwood forests converge here. Among the spruce fir are beech, oak, hickory, even some black cherry. Scanlon stops next to a hemlock, takes a core sampling device from his pocket, and uses it to get an inside look at the tree's health. Takes a while. There we go. There we go. Once the... Uh, once the teeth bite in, we're all set. Oh, it smells good. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, it's great when you're coring things like a yellow birch or, 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 or black birch. 
They give off a real nice wintergreen smell. This tree seems fine, but biologist Hector Galbraith, director of the Climate Change Initiative at Manomet Center for Conservation Sciences, says, look around and you will find evidence of warming here. There are indicators which I think are showing fairly conclusively that we're already seeing the sorts of ecological changes that we would anticipate under climate change. Changes in timing of breeding and hibernation and uh, migration schedules of organisms. I'm pretty confident that we're looking at a climate change signal already. Joining state forester John Scanlon and biologist Hector Galbraith and me on our hike up Mount Latetic is Mary Griffin, Massachusetts Commissioner of Fish and Wildlife. She says the department's computer models anticipate subtle but significant changes. They're predicting that um, winters are going to get one and a half to three and a half degrees Fahrenheit the warmer than they already are. So that's going to have dramatic impact on habitats and fish and wildlife species. One uh, uh, animal that's here at uh, Mount Watetic in the, in the spruce fir habitat is uh, the snowshoe hare. And that's a species that uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists and other biologists have predicted is likely to decline as temperatures warm. Ecosystems are infinitely complex, and climate change models only hint at the exquisite nature of a place. So here in Massachusetts, a unique team has come together. It's a collaborative effort bringing together state officials, applied scientists, field researchers, and non-governmental organizations, leveraging their expertise and experience to find habitats affected by climate change and help them adapt. Andy Finden is director of conservation science with the state chapter of the Nature Conservancy. Bruce, this is, um, these are birch seeds. What is it? The, bir- the seeds of birch. Where'd you get that? Well, there's a little birch over there, but you'll see them scattered on the snow like this. And I certainly hadn't thought of this before coming out here today, but one of the projections is that we'll get more precipitation in the winter as rain instead of snow. Now, these, these birches, there's about four species, four or five species native to Massachusetts, are adapted to falling on the snow and then blowing across that crust of snow to disperse. Now, if we don't have snow on the ground, that's going to limit the dispersal. Now, birches aren't threatened, but this is just one of the, something that just came to me about the kind of subtle network of events that could be triggered by changes to our our climate patterns. The indigenous Algonquins considered Mount Watetic a sacred site, the home of a deity who guarded against misfortune. But misfortune is what happened here a week ago, when an ice storm tore through the region sweeping it to New Hampshire and beyond into Maine, snapping power lines and trees like toothpicks. Bruce, I wanted to stop here and let me show you this here. We're approaching this uh, extensive sugar maple stand on the north side of Mount Watetic, and you can see firsthand, and we're probably some of the first people to see this, all of the obvious damage, all the tree crowns broken from the recent ice storm. It's just, that's all you're seeing is extensive damage to the crowns of these sugar maple from the uh, from the recent ice storm. Boy, they, the, all of these trees got whacked off? Oh, yeah, yeah. And people need to understand that when you talk about climate change, it doesn't have to be huge changes. One or two degrees change in temperature can mean what was going to be a snowstorm becomes a tremendous ice storm, giving us this kind of damage. The ice storm was one for the books, and perhaps the specter of things to come. As temperatures rise, the cold water brook trout found around here will lose its habitat, and perhaps so too the Blackburnian warbler, which stops in the Watetic forest as it migrates. 
They're just a few of the keystone species that call this place home, says Fish and Wildlife Commissioner Mary Griffin. I just wanted to point out we're looking, coming upon some deer tracks. That's the white-tailed deer uh, tracks in the snow. We've finally gotten past the deer in the headlight stage with climate change impacts. You know, what's climate change going to do to us? And we're beginning to think now about what we are going to do in response. Climate scientist Hector Goldberg. The state of Massachusetts has done a terrific job in preserving some of these systems. The question is, how do we continue doing that terrific job in the future under climate change? This is the adaptation question. The time for action is now, warns Dr. Galbraith, because we may not have as much time as we thought to adapt ecosystems for what's in store. You know, we tend to think about climate change and habitat responses as being long, slow, linear responses. That may not be the case. There may be abrupt changes in habitats brought on by stochastic events like, like frequent ice storms and tree damage, like increased frequency of insect attacks, like increased frequency of fire. So what we may see in these habitats that we're looking at today are frequent step, are, are step changes rather than slow gradual changes. Here's, here's, here's a potential example. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but this is the possibility. Winters become warmer. The overwinter survival of, it, of tree pests, insect pests, uh, is enhanced. Or the number of generations those insect populations can raise in a year is increased. So winters become warmer, more insects to attack the trees. Because there's more insect attack, there's more dead wood, more fire. Bingo, you may have a rapid transition from a forested habitat to something totally different. The, um, as to add to what Hector was saying, Forester John Scanlon. Those type of changes that could occur with the, the, the greater survival of insect pests could have a, gr a direct impact on the hemlock woolly adelgid, which is an invasive insect species that was introduced from Japan and has killed large sections of, of hemlock cover in Connecticut. was originally expected to sweep through Massachusetts, but their progress was slowed by the cooler winters. However, now that winters are warming, the adelgid is, is expected to cause extensive mortality of, uh, of hemlock forest uh, throughout, throughout Massachusetts. So, you know, what, if anything, can you do about that kind of thing? One, one thing the Nature Conservancy is doing, and with partnerships with the state agencies and management, is to find resilient forests, forests that are intact, have all their species, are functioning like a forest, are big, not fragmented by roads and other development. And these forests are going to be able to withstand and recover from the uh, higher incidence of climate events, weather events, insects and diseases that Hector and John were both talking about. But can you do that? I mean, is this like a finger in the dike? I mean, nature's force is going to be so ferocious. The, the trick is to increase resilience so that when climate change comes along, the systems, the ecosystems, might not be affected as much. So take away the other stressors, contaminants, so on and so forth, invasive species, uh, maybe we can uh, amplify the resilience of the threatened communities. One uh, strategy we have to try to create resilient uh, habitats is to protect large, intact interior forests and blocks of land, like, like where we are today. Um, so the state has protected over 4,000 acres of open space, and we work with partners to protect the most valuable habitats. So in protecting those habitats, like this Roos for, fir forest or the northern hardwoods where we are today, we're protecting places for wildlife to feed, breed, and to find resting areas. And that makes them more resilient to the stresses of climate change. But you know, right over there is New Hampshire. 
if they don't do anything or they don't do something that's going to be in support of what you're doing here in Massachusetts, uh, could that effort just come to naught? We're all more interrelated by the, a global problem like climate change. The state of Massachusetts has been working with some of our neighboring states um, to protect these intact corridors with other states. Um, we recently brought, bought a large 5,000-acre uh, piece of property that's half in Connecticut, half in Massachusetts. Uh, last year, we protected an 8,000-acre block with the state of Rhode Island. Um, so we do work across state boundaries because biodiversity knows no boundaries. Adapting the hemlocks at Mount Latadic to climate change might mean thinning the tops of trees to let more light in, or removing ground cover to help seeds take root. Cold water brook trout might benefit by tearing down dams, creating cooler streams. Learning to adapt an ecosystem to the stresses and strains of a changing climate also means adopting a new model for managing environments, says Dr. Hector Galbraith. I think the model that we've created among ourselves is a really good model. A year ago, if we'd been having this conversation, I would have said that Massachusetts is the only place in the Union where we're doing this. But there's other points of light have started to emerge uh, in the last, the last six months. And I like to think that some of those have been influenced by the work we're doing in Massachusetts. For example, uh, Texas, the state of Texas, is now taking very seriously adaptation to climate change. And, you know, let's be honest about this. There are some habitats we probably can't do anything about. Um, so there are some hard decisions coming up. You know, we can all talk about here's the here are the various things we can do, but climate change is going to have fairly, se fairly serious adverse impacts on our ecosystems. And we've got to come to terms with that. Climate disruption will make winners of some habitats and species and losers of others. Right now, Massachusetts is creating a vulnerability index to figure out which ecosystems in the state will be adversely affected in the coming years and what, if anything, can be done to adapt them to the changing climate. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Gellerman. Agriculture is responsible for about a third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, more than the transportation sector. About half of those emissions come directly from crop and livestock production, and much of the rest from land clearing and degradation for food production. Sarah Shear is an economist and head of Eco Agriculture Partners. She wrote an article on agriculture and climate change in this year's State of the World book by the World Watch Institute. Ms. Shear says changing the way we farm could be one of the least painful and most effective ways of cutting emissions. One of the most interesting tidbits of knowledge that I learned in the past year is that if you take a cow and a calf in beef production in one of our intensive feedlot systems here in the U.S., that that pair of animals actually emits more in a year than a mid-sized car in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So you could either drive an electric car or quit eating meat. Is that what you're telling me? Well, quit eating meat or make sure that you eat meat from a kind of a sustainable livestock production system. How could uh, one make a sustainable meat production that wouldn't add to, to climate change? Well, so much of the world's annual crop production is used to feed cattle. And a lot of that could be substituted for by returning to having animals instead graze on pasture. And if you have perennial pastures, long-lived grasses, 
you can actually produce a very a high levels of meat and dairy production without having to depend upon the use of, of a lot of grain. Apart from what they eat, um, one of the big problems for, for livestock is actually the gases that they produce in their stomach and the manure and waste that they produce because those are very full of a particularly powerful greenhouse gas called methane. So there's a number of approaches that are being used to try to reduce those. One of them is to try to use the manure in clever ways by actually using the manures and the other wastes from livestock as a source of biogas. So we have a lot of really just, you know, thousands and thousands of, of farms around the world heating their buildings with the waste that came out of their, their livestock production. How does tilling the soil increase CO2 emissions, and what is no-till agriculture anyway? Well, if you look at um, all the different places that carbon is stored in the world, it turns out that the third most important sink is actually the world's soils. And the process of conventional agricultural tillage, where you take a plow or other implements and turn the soil around at the beginning of the cropping season, actually, every time you do that, you release a large amount of carbon from the soils. So one of the things that's been developed in modern agricultural systems over the last couple of decades is something that's called minimum tillage or even no-till systems that really try to not turn the soil around very much. They manage soil quality and they manage the weed problem through other kinds of methods that don't require turning that soil around. How does no-till agricultural affect crop production? I mean, we've got more and more people coming into the world. Obviously, that means more and more mouths to feed. The way that we farm, uh, we do this, right, because we want bigger and better harvests. How can we do that with, with no-till agriculture? Well, I think this is the exciting thing about what's going on right now in terms of the reconsideration of how we do agricultural production, because actually a lot of the things that we do that cost money and cause environmental damage actually don't contribute that much to agricultural production. So a lot of the no-till systems and low-till systems farmers like a great deal because they can produce just as much food with them for a lot less cost. So it's a win for the environment, a win for farmers, and a win for food production. Of course, climate change is not only affected by agriculture, it works the other way around. I mean, climate change is going to have a big effect on agriculture. So how do the techniques that you're talking about help farmers prepare for the warmer temperatures that are coming? One of the advantages of the approaches for mitigating climate, which is to get more organic matter in your soils, is that those kinds of activities actually make the farming system much more resilient. High organic matter soils actually hold water better so that if you start having much more erratic rainfall, they're going to be less susceptible to loss of the harvest. The other thing is you're going to have more diversity within the farming system in terms of different kinds of plants and different kinds of products, and that's going to reduce the risks to farmers of climate that can't be predicted. So how then does the world encourage these agricultural techniques? Most of us think about farmers as producing food which, of course, is the major thing we want them to do. But more and more, we realize that farmers are actually the major stewards of our ecosystems around the world, by far, far more than public protected areas or other kinds of local, local lands. Uh, the farmers are the stewards, and we need to be thinking about them and their role, not only as producers of food, but also as producers of ecosystem services. 
So I think we need to be rethinking everything from our public subsidies and what do we subsidize farmers to do. And increasingly, we need to subsidize them, not for producing food we don't want, but for producing the ecosystem services that we need. Sarah Shear is president and CEO of Eco Agriculture Partners, one of the organizations that contributed to this year's State of the World study by the World Watch Institute. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Just ahead, the public's love affair with Pluto. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. January. It's a hazy shade of winter and daylight is scarce. The folks at the Eco Calendar Project capture cosmic moments like this in what we call Eco Time. Gray days. It's dark now when you rise and dark again before you retire. And the days rarely brighten up, instead, they're gray. It's not because the Earth has moved further from the sun. No, it's because the Earth is tilted on its axis. And the North Pole is tipping away from the sun right now. In the summer, the North Pole is tilted toward the sun, and the sun rays shine almost straight down. But now the sun is low in the sky, and its rays have to pass through lots of Earth's atmosphere to get here. That's lots of possible dark gray clouds, fog and mist to block and bounce the light. So the bright yellow of the sun is seen as bone white by the time it finally penetrates Earth's atmospheric filter. That's Chris Hardman with EcoTime, part of the EcoCalendar Project. For more information, go to LOE.org. Few scenes in movies are scarier than the attacks of the vicious avians in Alfred Hitchcock's thriller, The Birds. Well, I think these were crows. Yes, hundreds of them. Yes, they attacked the children, attacked them. In the 1963 thriller, crazed birds terrorize residents of the Northern California coast. Though the film was based on a short story, it may have also been influenced by a real-life bird poisoning that occurred just a few miles from the home of Alfred Hitchcock. Since then, similar cases have been documented around the world. And scientists now believe they have identified an ocean toxin that causes suffering and erratic behavior in marine animals. Amy Coombs has the story. In 1961, about two years before the movie The Birds was released, real-life residents in the beach town of Capitola awoke to birds slamming into their rooftops. The suburb of Santa Cruz was covered with dead seabirds and bits of disgorged fish. But University of California Santa Cruz professor Rafael Cudella says unlike in the film, the birds weren't trying to hurt anyone. 
the movie suggested that they were actually attacking people. What was probably happening is they were poisoned and they were disoriented and they were just simply flying into things. According to the local paper, Alfred Hitchcock did request news reports to use as research material for his latest thriller. At the time, people thought the birds had lost their way in the fog. But scientists now say demoic acid, a toxin produced by sea algae, is to blame for the strange behavior. Demoic acid is a neurotoxin, and so if you get enough of it in humans or in marine mammals, it actually causes brain damage. And it comes and goes, and every few years we have a big outbreak. Oftentimes there will be deaths of California sea lions or dolphins or brown pelicans. More and more sea animals are being poisoned by demoic acid. Each year the toxin kills hundreds of California sea lions that eat contaminated fish. Veterinarian Frances Goland and her staff see the suffering at their rescue center, located at the north end of the Golden Gate Bridge. Would you want influenza? Oh, yes. Are there swabs there? I guess I'm going to have to run and go get some. Can we move that animal to C5 instead of D5? This is one that was having seizures and was picked up on the beach yesterday. Demoic acid binds tightly to excitatory neurons and causes a range of erratic behavior. As volunteer Lee Jackerel prepares a mesh net, he says six sea lions are also extremely sensitive and prone to overreact when approached. So we have a long, thin net that we'll put over his head that helps uh, constrain his movements so it's easier to restrain him. And uh, he will not enjoy that, and he will try to get away from us and probably yell at us a bit and try to bite us. As the researchers walk into the chain link enclosure, the sea lion spasms and tries to run away. Once trapped in the net, it takes five researchers to hold down his fins, take blood, and administer treatments. Despite the creature's misery, Golan says this sea lion is lucky. In many cases, the debilitating seizures cause so much brain damage that the animal dies. This is why more than half of the rescues have to be put to sleep, and many more die unnoticed at sea. Again, veterinarian Francis Goland. Currently in California, it's probably the commonest cause of disease in the mammals that we see. So I'd say it's the most important threat. And the interesting thing, or the, the, the reason to be concerned, is it doesn't just cause seizures in adult animals, but it also crosses the placenta in pregnant females and can damage the developing fetus. So it can cause abortions and it can cause death of the newborn pup. Scientists have known for a long time that demoic acid is produced by a sea algae, or plankton, called pseudonychia. But that only happens sometimes. The algae is usually benign. The question that has plagued them is, what makes the plain algae suddenly start producing the toxin? This is why Raphael Kudela's lab is filled with beakers of pseudonychia. Kudela shakes a bottle of the filmy algae. He says he thinks a form of nitrogen, called urea, makes the algae produce toxin. This is pseudonychia. Pseudonychia multiseries will double its toxicity when we give it urea to grow on. It grows at about the same rate, whether we're giving it nitrate or ammonium or urea, all of which are just sources of nitrogen. But when we grow it on urea, even though it's growing at about the same rate, it's producing twice as much toxin. So far, Kudela says urea is the only chemical he's found that makes the algae increase demoic acid production. 
Having identified urea, the next question was whether it was present in the ocean. Kudela took water samples, and it turns out that urea levels are high enough to cause a problem. When we measure things at the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf or we're in the San Francisco Bay, we can measure quite high concentrations of urea. Oftentimes, it can be the largest source of nitrogen that's in the water. The findings appear in the November issue of the journal Harmful Algae. So the burning question now is, where is all the urea coming from? James Clorn, a biologist at the U.S. Geological Survey, says that with urea, the arrows usually point to humans. When we think of urea, which is uh, an excretory waste product of, of vertebrates, we think of things like untreated sewage or runoff from animal feedlots. Northern and Central California do have livestock, as well as people living with older, perhaps leaky septic systems. Urea can also come from garden fertilizers like miracle Grow. Clorin says we're still figuring out what's causing the increase in demoic acid poisonings. This new work is important because it gives us a strong clue that one of those factors is the presence of urea, which we associate with land sources. Some researchers, like Kudela and the veterinarian Goland, hope we won't have to wait for certainty. They hope coastal communities will begin to watchdog urea pollution as a precaution. For Living on Earth, I'm Amy Coombs. My very educated mother served us nine pizzas. Sound familiar? Or maybe you know, my very excellent monkey just sat under Noah's porch. Mnemonics like these have helped generations and generations of American schoolchildren learn the names of the planets in the solar system. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. That is, until 2006, when the international scientific community kicked Pluto out of the planetary club, and in doing so, turned the world upside down for millions of Americans. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson initiated the recategorization of Pluto in the year 2000 when, as director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History, he chose to exhibit a model of the solar system without little Pluto as the ninth planet. He joins me now to talk about his new book, The Pluto Files, The Rise and Fall of America's Favorite Planet. So, Mr. Tyson, you're the guy who got Pluto demoted to a dwarf planet. What do you have to say for yourself? Well, I didn't, I didn't, like, Pluto, first, Pluto had it coming. Let's just establish that, well, first of all. Okay. Second, it's not like I demoted it. In the museum exhibit, we just said, take a look at the solar system. We have Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. They're all small and rocky, and they're more like each other than any one of them is like other stuff in the solar system. So that became a, a group. And then you look at the asteroid belt. That's a group. And then the gas giants. That's a group. And then the icy bodies in the outer solar system. That's all we did. And the New York Times discovered this fact about what we did, and a page one story appeared titled, Pluto Not a Planet? Only in New York. And that's when all the hate mail started coming in from elementary school children. I had this five-inch thick file of paper correspondence, but some of the letters sort of rose above the rest in terms of how innovative or how clever or how charming they were. There's a letter from a girl, Madeline Yost, who said, you know, dear Dr. Tyson, why did you take away my favorite planet? Here's a picture of it. This is what it looks like. Put it back in. Write back soon, but not in cursive. I don't know how to read cursive yet. <laughs> That's the cutest thing. <laughs> so why, 
why were people really ticked off at you and, and, and so upset? Science is constantly changing. Why all the upset about Pluto? The upset wasn't everybody. The people who were most upset were Americans because an American discovered it. Europe, they couldn't care less what you call Pluto. And so thinking long and hard about this, I could not help but blame at least part of this emotional attachment on the fact that we have a dog named Pluto, owned by Mickey, drawn by Disney. What else do we have to show the world but like our computers, our jets, and Disney? So in order for the vote to come down against Pluto, the scientific community had to define what planets are. So Neil Tyson, tell me, what are planets exactly, and what else do we know about the nether regions of our solar system? So they got, in the end, defined by vote to be an object large enough to be round, because if you're large enough, gravity forces you to be round. That's criteria number one. Number two, do you dominate all other objects that share your orbit? If those two criteria apply to you, then you are a planet. Pluto is round, but there are thousands of other objects in orbit with it in the Kuiper Belt of Comet. It hasn't cleared its orbit. It's a dwarf planet. Is that politically correct, though? I mean, is it fair to discriminate against dwarves? <laughs> uh, no, but <laughs> science. <laughs> Actually, I have to say quickly, when Pluto was demoted, Mickey, ish, Mickey Mouse issued a memo to the Disney community saying that it's okay that Pluto was demoted because the seven dwarfs will now welcome him as an eighth dwarf. <laughs> so, and, the, and those dwarfs are no less lovable for being dwarfs. In fact, they're more lovable. So they voted that Pluto would not be considered a planet, and a new word was introduced for round objects beyond Neptune. They're called Plutoids. So Pluto is the sort of the benchmark case of a Plutoid. And <laughs> there are many people who didn't like the vote. This all sounds very political. In fact, even though the scientific community changed the nomenclature there, a couple of states refused to accept that Pluto is uh, a dwarf planet. I'm looking, as a matter of fact, in your book, you have in your appendix, California legislation relative to Pluto's planetary status. It's, it says that uh, the mean-spirited International Astronomical Union decided to disrespect Pluto by stripping Pluto of its planetary status and reclassifying it as a lowly dwarf planet. Yeah, this is actual legislation that was passed in California. California was not the only state to propose that kind of legislation. It also happened in New Mexico, a longtime state of residence for Clyde Tombaugh, discoverer of Pluto. In New Mexico, if you cross into the border, they declare no matter what else the astronomers say, in New Mexico, Pluto is a planet by law. <laughs> so, so I was impressed at the level at which all factions of the public participated in this conversation and the dialogue. It's, it's extraordinary. What about Jupiter? Now, as I understand, in fact, I think Neil Tyson once told me that Jupiter gives off more energy than yes, it, it takes does. in. So That's right. isn't it some kind of a star rather than a planet? Well, so here you go. So rather than have the word planet refer to something so large and gaseous and energetic as Jupiter in the same breath as something as small as Pluto that's icy, that's not any longer a useful word if both of those objects are in the same classification. So why not think of the solar system as all kinds of objects that you might want to think about and talk about? Jupiter gives off more energy than it takes in. That's a certain kind of planet. In the old days, all there were were points of light in the sky. Maybe you knew what color they were. So you put them all together, call them planets, you're done. 
but now we've been there. We've landed on them. We know what they're made of. They've got magnetic fields and atmospheres and methane and carbon dioxide and moon systems and rings. And, and there's too much else to talk about to sit there and smile because you can recite the names of what you think is the important category called a planet. By the way, you mentioned methane on ooh, yeah, the ooh, other planets. That's out. Yeah, that's yeah. So, out. so what's going on with I, what's what's this about methane on Mars? I mean, to me, I mean, you get methane from a garbage dump. Does that mean that something is rotting there? You can get methane in a bunch of ways, but one of the easiest ways to get methane is by the action of microbes. Microbes that digest their food in environments where there's little to no oxygen. And not only that, methane doesn't last very long chemically. So if you see it anywhere, as it has been discovered on Mars just recently, if you see it, it means it's been freshly made. So what's tantalizing is the prospect that this methane is a biomarker for the actions of microbes deep within the soils of Mars. Which would mean, of course, life on Mars. Life on Mars. Not the kind with antennae and ray guns, but microbes would be just fine. If you're a biologist, any kind of life at all to compare with life on Earth is, it would transform the field. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist and author of the new book, The Pluto Files, The Rise and Fall of America's Favorite Planet. Mr. Tyson, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. You're to dust in the black void. It's hard not to feel a bit destroyed. On the next Living on Earth, we travel to Bulgaria, where gypsy buskers used to perform with dancing bears in exchange for money. The bears were often mistreated, but now they have their own retirement home with fresh fruit meals local people could only wish for. It's a bear's life in Belitsa, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in a winter gray. On a cold New York day, the pitter-patter, well, it's more like a slushy rattling of rain and sleet, create this soundscape as they hit a window. John Hudak recorded these wet tunes as part of a CD called Day of Sound. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. And congratulations to Jeff Young and his wife Helen on the birth of their baby girl the same day that the president was sworn in. Now, some of us think they should name her Michelle. Others think the right name is Baraka. Our interns are Lindsay Breslau and Liz Gross. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, 
the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life, information at gatesfoundation.org, and Paxworld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing, Paxworld for tomorrow, on the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.